Welcome to another episode. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Techno Wizard. It is 10:29 a.m. and uh, it's a nice day outside. Finally sunny after all these years. <laughs> no, I appreciate the rain. You know, it's, it's pretty nice. Uh, but sunshine, like a nice, nice clear day, it's pretty nice. And it's still clouds in the sky. You know, so you still got that diversity. You know, uh, I think a I think a clear blue sky is kind of overrated. I appreciate, you know, having cool clouds and stuff like that to look at too. Um, but anyways, so yesterday, whew, it was a a great day. Um, I got the news finally. My offer letter got things signed, and um, I am officially employed. Onboarding is going to be next week. First, uh, or well, first part of the onboarding, and then my start day is the 18th. Um, that's also the day I'm getting my second shot. So um, those first two days are going to be a little, you know, um, low key as I acclimate and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm so excited, and I feel embarrassed because I I made a little oopsie <laughs> in terms of the the salary. Um, I'm never sure like how much I can say about this stuff but I thought it was gonna be a little bit more because <laughs> I was thinking in in um in hours like in money dollars per hour and they were thinking in like salary like yearly salary and I was like oh duh like <laughs> but it's still good it's still a good amount not as much as I was thinking um but it's I'm super grateful for it anyways because uh, it's still more than I've ever made <laughs> than my parents has ever made and um, it's like still you know coming out of poverty you know it's still it's still amazing furthermore it helps me to acclimate you know acc- speaking of acclimation you know acclimate into this this new range of income right because you hear this all the time with people like winning the lottery or something like that and I know I'm, just, I'm not nothing it's nothing similar to that or it's kind of similar but not really but folks who like win the lottery who win or at least just win a large sum of money and they usually lose it all it's not because they're you know they can't handle money or whatever it's just because the habits that they built up you know to survive and while while impoverished are completely different habits than people who you know are not impoverished that's just as simple as it is and people love to say oh these people they just waste money they just don't know how to use blah 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 blah. i'm like no like you got to realize when you're living in poverty it, like i said I, I i tried to explain yesterday it's extremely difficult you know to actually save money it's extremely difficult like it's not just a matter of oh you just don't have the discipline or what no it's literally it seems like every day every week or every month something is hitting you Right, it's just boom, 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 and you just have to react, react, react. Even though you're trying to be proactive, you're trying your best to be proactive, right? You just get hit down and down again, and it's extremely difficult, you know, to stay, to stay upbeat and to, you know, be proactive, right? You literally have to do some crazy stuff and have an amazing support group and have the luck, you know, work out for you as well in order for you to stay proactive and, and be proactive for long enough for you to get out of that. Right? It's, it's just, it's just really demoralizing. So I understand, you know, folks who end up uh, kind of back in poverty after a windfall 
and that's what I don't want to do, right? And so, in some levels, I'm kind of grateful that I didn't make. I'm not making as much as I thought I was going to make, because I'm not going to lie, it, it, it would have been almost uh, overwhelming in a way, right? And I would have been so anxious and, and scared <laughs> to, to 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 you know that I would maintain this and all this other stuff. Um, so this is kind of like a step up for the, for like a step up towards where I want to be. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's just amazing anyways, but now I can talk more about where I'm going to be working at. So there's this company called Futurist. Um, I've talked about them before, uh, over the summer. That's who I was contracting with. Oh, that's one of the folks who I was contracting with. And, um, they essentially are futures technology companies, how they describe themselves, which I really love. So they work with all sorts of, you know, futures technologies, mostly uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality. But also they have some other stuff like, you know, edge computing or a little bit of drones, a little bit of this, that and the other. Um, they essentially are just interested in using any sort of future technology to better help other folks to utilize that technology, you know, to get access to it, to... Um, do cool things with it and to use it ethically and um, all this other stuff right they've always been one to give back they always are doing like events or classes or something where they're teaching the community as well about how to use these devices that's like i said before i was able to reach out to them when i was a, a little a little <laughs> you know a little guy who was learning to code you know five six was it six years ago i think it was 2015 2016 you know I was nobody, and I was able to reach out to them and be like, hey, can you speak at my class about XR? Even though it was completely different links, like I was learning Ruby on Rails, uh, you're never going to use that for XR, I don't think. <laughs> but they, they responded, and they you know, came and, and talked about XR, and I, and I, was, and I was amazing. You know? And then I went to a lot of their events and all this other stuff, and it was just fantastic. So, like I said, I've been, I've, my, my eyes have been on this company for a very long time, and it's cool that I'm finally joining the team. And I'm super excited to just like, you know, get in there and, and do some cool work. Um, the, the particular work I'm going to be doing to start with, at least, is essentially I think the title is a uh, XR design strategist. So I'm going to be creating, you know, design documentations for clients. Um, and our clients could be any pretty much any type of person, but they specifically choose their clients to be the type of people who you know they they like it's not not like military folks or this that and the other i mean if you the military that's your that's your thing but personally me and you know and that team as well which i appreciate doesn't want to be like the type of folks who are creating you know weapons or use cases for the army and this that and the other or you know oil companies and stuff like that which i really appreciate because unfortunately other you know xr companies do 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 that and again, I, I get it, but that's just not me, right? <laughs> this is not what I'm interested in. Um, so I appreciate that not only this company does XR, and they're always giving back to the community, but they choose their clients, and I agree with pretty much, you know, much of their uh, client choices. So, uh, now one second. You know, one day we're going to free ourselves from the shackles of lawnmowers and lawns, but <laughs> things are so loud. And again, lawns are wasteland, goodness. Anyways, um, so yeah, I'm going to be working with these clients and um, helping to create design documentations. And what that means is like, 
you know, if a client has an idea for an XR or any type of technology tool that they want to create, right, or experience that they want to create, um, they usually need help to do it because most of them, you know, don't have an internal team for XR uh, developers or designers or this, that, and the other. And even if they do, they probably aren't specialized um, in XR. And so <laughs> a lot of them too, they also have tried to do it before and then they failed. <laughs> but luckily they realized that there is a lot of upside to doing some good XR experiences. And so they reach out to people who know how to do that stuff, right? So during the, um, I think I mentioned this before, over the summer, I was working with, I was helping them, helping a client who wanted to create um, these kind of, um, what do you call it, um, extreme experiences or like, there's a specific word they use, I forget the word, but basically they're creating, you know, these kind of death-defying experiences like mountain climbing and base jumping and stuff like that. They and and um, cross walking like they want to create virtual experiences of these experiences and the reason why is because they help companies overcome like fear or do team bonding exercises and all this other stuff through those exercise through those uh experiences those those extreme sports or adventure sports and so we were creating a virtual version of that and um that is just one type of experience that I would help to design all right um, future experiences, they might be training type of things, like training companies with their their different, you know, training regime, um, what do you call it, regimes, regimes or whatever, um, to help employees get onboarded better or to, you know, improve their operations, things like that. Oh, excuse me. And um, another one might be to help, you know, um, let's say childcare hospitals to have really cool experiences to give you know children a a, a, a great time while they're in their hospital stuff like that uh, it could be any number of things but usually it's 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 uh the the kind of value of de helping to design these experiences is ensuring that they're designed well right and um if you've heard you know these podcasts you you know what i mean by that is that you can't just throw on a headset and uh, throw on an experience and just be like yeah here here we go you have to think about, you know, how to make it comfortable, how to make it intuitive, how to make it easy, uh, which same thing, basically same thing as intuitive, but also how to make it immersive, right? And, and how to make it kind of explain like what your or really live up to what your what your vision is, while at the same time maybe adjusting your vision sometimes if you realize that your vision is wrong or incorrect or something like that. Or at least like inaccurate rather so yeah I get to do a, a lot of that and I'll also be doing some like basically I think it, the, the term is called um, account management or whatever basically maintaining the relationships between those clients um, just communicating keeping up communications making sure you know everything is is going well and all this, that and the other so yeah super excited for that and um, there's definitely a, another chapter in my life a huge huge step right into um where i want to go and it's just i'm super looking forward to it Whew. it's gonna be dope <laughs> but in addition to all that um i got super excited well it was kind of late in the day um well let me before i get into that let me talk about what else i did what else did I do? 
Um, oh yeah, so I did most of that for the, for the offer. You know, it was some. I did some small tasks. I kind of reassessed my goals, and I had this nice little system. I think it would be fun for me, where I um, put down. I have like up to five to dos, to dos that I want to do on a daily on on that day, like things I want to accomplish today or you know each day, and then I have five daily tasks things that are not really tasks but five things that i want to do on a daily basis things like you know work out do this podcast um what else i have up there um talk to people on social media or just you know share my thoughts on social media um reach out to a friend and um update my goals or something like that right so just daily kind of maintenance tasks for myself um in addition to those five ace five to-do lists and then up to five for my weekly goals so things i need to get done that week but it doesn't really matter what day i do them per se so things like you know putting out a new youtube video um up to three youtube videos you know, one about philosophy one about anarchy one about design maybe more after that we'll see um then i have stuff like updating my my newsletter and publishing my newsletter things like um well whatever you know stuff like that so i set that out and that was really cool I think that will help me to better feel, I don't want to say productive, but like, you know, like I'm doing, like I'm moving towards my goals. I guess that is being productive. But again, it's not, the point is not to just be busy just to be busy, but to actually move forward to, towards where I want to go and um, live every day to the best that I can. Because <laughs> prior to that, I kept, I kept like, even though I had these, I had my goals set out and I had my, my, um, kind of three main things I want to do that day there I felt myself kind of missing out on certain things that I knew I want to do but for some reason I forgot them or I just didn't get to them or whatever so actually seeing you know writing down everything that I actually want to do on a daily or weekly basis really helps me and I think will help me further going forward especially as I have a full-time job and I'm gonna have to better manage my time um, I think that will go a long way and then after that they're fixing my goals up um i did a youtube video you know another stream streaming some philosophy so once again reading a phenomenology of spirit by hegel um i was in sections 18 to 20 uh this was a pretty good session as well and he was talking about the uh what was he talking about um the kind of cycle of knowledge of the fact that when you want to know something or learn something um, you have to look at, you have to kind of alienate that, that idea from itself. Now, he was speaking in terms of, you know, the idea of God or, or whatever, right? But it's, it's a little difficult to um, speak on the same, to interpret it the same way he was thinking about it, I think, um, back then. Because in the 1800s, and I, I'm going to talk a lot more about this um, after this, but in the 1800s, they were in a specific time or really in the 1700s. But in his time when he was writing his book, they were in a very, very odd time, um, very interesting time, right? That, that was the time of uh, the going into the Enlightenment period. Um, you had uh, people, you know, still coming from the New World and a lot of information that was coming from the New World, which is, you know, America into Europe. You know, you had a lot of uh, change and stuff like that happening. And um, at the same time, a lot of that, they were, they were still... It is kind of, 
idea of God as the ultimate, you know, source of knowledge and 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 thing and and stuff like that, right? Today, about half the population is very very much atheist, and the other half, um, sure they're religious, but they don't necessarily use religion or God as a as a uh, explanation of the universe. At least most people don't. And of course, a lot of religious people do, but in terms of the scientific community, even the religious scientists don't necessarily use God as like, oh, this is this is this explains everything, right? But back then, people did, right? Everything kind of came to this idea of God. <laughs> and so, a lot of the philosophical and scientific texts, right, are very much religious. They're very much puritanistic or or um things like that or Judaistic or whatever the uh, terms are and so during his time um, he's very much talking against you know these people who who were like you know everything is in God's image and you can't really explain everything because God is God blah 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 and he's kind of like going oh no well if you have to if you really want to you know create a philosophical text and, and treat philosoph <laughs> philosophy uh, philosophy like it's a like it's just another science then you have to treat it with the same rigor Right, so in this chapter, in this sections, he was talking about the fact that you have to kind of alienate it to an extent. Right? He he had this wonderful analogy. He's saying where he said, um, um, saying you know God is God or or you know the divine is is divine is like saying animals are animals. It's like saying um, this is true because all animals have it, or <laughs> or because you know, or trying to say you know trying to explain animals by just saying animals in general but rather than breaking it down into its, its constituent parts and saying okay this is an animal you know this is not an animal um this is the different parts of an animal and all this other stuff and um i think that 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 really drives the point home of of why you need to alienate the concept of a, of a thing if you really want to understand that thing like if you want to say you know who you are as an identity or as an idea, like for for instance, the idea of freedom or the idea of identity or the idea of money or whatever, you have to say um, what it is and then what it's not, right? You, you have a kind of negation aspect. And so he talked about um, the, the use of the, the negative, um, I forgot the exact word, but basically the use of the negative, right? The use of the negative as a, as a form of negation. Um, and he has a he has a kind of a cycle with it, right? The thesis, the antithesis, and then the um, the synthesis, right? So you go through a full circle in order to explain something, right? If you just try to say you know, explain something through itself, then you don't really get to learn much from it. But if you explain something from what it what it is not, then you can learn more from it, and then you can synthesize that back into the uh, the full circle truth of what that thing is. Right, so once again, if we go back to this example of um, let's say animals, if you want to understand understand what an animal is, you can't just say an animal is an animal. That doesn't really, you know, tell you something. You gotta say, okay, an animal is uh, okay. It, we think an animal is this, and that means this is not an animal. Are we, or or you can ask, you know, okay, but what is not an animal? And and by doing so, you can better understand what makes an animal. And then you can, and it's a, it's, a, it's a cyclical pattern, right? It doesn't go full circle, it's more of a spiral because then you go into, into greater and greater detail each time. You say, okay, this is an animal, this is not an animal. Okay, but what makes this an animal? What makes that an animal? What makes that not an animal, right? And you can go more and more into death. You can break it down and say, what's the different types of animals? You know, what is, 
on all this other stuff until you get to the essence of things. And then, you know, Hegel goes into saying, okay, but you can get into the essence of essence. Like, what, what, what is the essentials of essence? All right, this is a very interesting idea because, again, back then, a lot of folks thought in the, in the terms of the essence of things and saying, oh, well, this is the essence of humanity, the essence of freedom, or the essence of, you know, this, that, and the other. And um, that understanding is pretty, is, we, I don't think we really have that understanding these days. Like, I don't think most, most people really think about these things like that in those terms. However, it's still kind of sort of there. Like, I don't know, I haven't read, like, contemporary philosophy too much yet, but um, nonetheless, he was he was saying, you know, okay, what what is the essentials of the essence? Like, what makes the essence of something? <laughs> um, and I just found that a very interesting way of thinking and, and delving into these ideas of being able to grasp with knowledge. I'm, I'm, I know I'm missing a lot. I'm probably <laughs> misinterpreting things, but as I said in my stream yesterday, I think there's also kind of some value in misinterpreting streams and misinterpreting ideas or misinterpreting what was there before or what what has been said before and i say that because every as soon as you write something down or as soon as you speak something um it's already out of your hands right somebody else when somebody else hears it or, or reads it they are already interpreting it differently than what you intended right i don't think it's it's possible I don't think it's physically possible to communicate something in such a way that is completely and perfectly interpreted the way you intended. Like it's just not. There's always going to be some level of loss, some signal loss, or some you know some um, crossing of signals or whatever, right? And that's okay too because that allows a my favorite word, a dialectic, right? A conversation of you going back and forth with with you know your different interpretations and your interpretations of those interpretations and in doing so you can uncover more truth and more you know of this of this knowledge and this this conscious experience that we have right and it, I'm, I'm i'm getting somewhere with this so so uh follow me here but um in addition to that you have yeah i just forgot where i was going with it. not where i was going but i forgot what else i was going to say to 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 kind of you know make this a stronger point but <laughs> this is what happens when we just try to come up come up with all this on, on the fly but anyways oh yeah, yeah 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 so yeah you have an interpretation of it and then interpretation of interpretation and you have that dialectic you know that that conversation in that conversation is the the the, the kind of experience of of consciousness of of being conscious beings of being conscious people right and whenever you converse with somebody you have to step out of your mind a little bit, right? And see from their perspective, right? You have to see the reality, the world for what it is, or at least for what you both think it is. Because you, you realize that that person and this person and that person, they all see, you know, reality from a slightly different perspective. And by talking with each other, right? You can get a better perspective of what reality is that you're living in. Right? That's an extremely kind of conscious um, experience. And then furthermore, even if you don't have a direct dialectic, a direct conversation with somebody, it's kind of like that Marquez Brownlee video um, where he uploaded the video over and over again on YouTube. And then after 100 or 
couple hundred or a thousand times, it was almost completely unrecognizable from the original video just by uploading over and over again. Because every time you upload it, it gets you know compressed or decompressed or whatever. I don't know, I forgot the exact term, but it basically gets messed up. The signal gets messed up, it loses some signal, loses some resolution until you know eventually it's unrecognizable. However, once you shift your perspective of that unrecognizable, you know, kind of video, you can get a whole new interpretation of it, right? You may not get anything that he intended to interpret, right? You may not actually get what he what he said out of the video because the, the audio is so garbled up. You may not even get his face anymore. You, pro you definitely won't get his face anymore. You just get a splotch, right? However, if you change your perspective of what you're seeing, then it becomes art. It becomes a new creative outlet. It becomes something in which you can turn into something else, right? And there lies the value of creativity and creation and, and change and innovation, right? Where you, you take something that may or may not have been intended to be, to, to kind of portray or communicate a certain information, but then you, you take information from it, right? You create information from it, not because not again not because somebody tried to communicate the exact piece of information but the act of perceiving it right the act of thinking about it allows you to to create a whole new um piece of information or or type of information from that thing whether it's a book a video a tree you know anything right and that is also a beautiful aspect of consciousness is that we can take something and which doesn't seem to make any kind of sense, right? You can say it's completely random, or it's completely, you know, noise. It's just noise. But we can take that and turn it into a pattern, right? We can make art out of it. We can turn it into, you know, another video. We can turn it into new information and portray new information about that thing. And that's the beauty of consciousness. That's the amazing aspect of, of human thought, right? And so all of this is kind of sitting in my mind. Because late last night, or later last night, I watched another video um, by David Graeber. I finally, you know, checked out David Graeber a little bit. And um, he, was, he was talking to an anthropologist by the name of uh, uh, David uh, Wagner, I think. Wagner or something like that. Right? And guess what they were talking about? They were talking about the myth of the stupid savage. This is the, that's the title of the video. David Wagner and David Graeber on the, the myth of the stupid savage and this just blew my mind because you know as you know I've been talking about the history of um, hunter-gatherer peoples and history of egalitarian uh, cultures and this that and the other and going and get kind of slowly but surely getting into the kind of learning more about human history right and showing that humans were extremely um, kind of varied throughout human history Right, we've been humans. We've with this level of intelligence for about two hundred, maybe three hundred thousand years. Right, we've been shifting between different types of societies ever since then. And for me, I thought that I think I was, you know, kind of falling into this idea of sort of the noble savage, but not really. Like I recognize that the whole term of the noble savage is kind of a, you know, um, racist ethnocentric term. Um, but I was still falling into this idea that. You know, these hunter-gatherer cultures were, by and large, egalitarian for, you know, the entire time. But David Wagner and um, David Graeber were talking about how 
actually, there's a huge history, actually, well, actually, <laughs> there's a huge history of these societies actually switching back and forth, right, between egalitarian cultures and, and very hierarchical cultures, between hunter-gatherer societies and cities, you know, between super, quote-unquote, developed, right, <laughs> nations and, 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 you know, um, kind of, tri quote-unquote, tribal, you know, um, hunter-gatherers and stuff like that. And they've been doing that for thousands of years. We can actually, there's actually anthropo anthropological data showing that this has been happening for, since about 50,000 years. 50,000 years, at least, right? And so, they're able to, like, pinpoint, you know, for instance, uh, grave, grave sites, where they were extreme, like, 30,000 years ago, grave sites that are extremely complex, where they had, like, thousands of bones and or or you know um kind of like jewelry made out of bones or made out of precious metals or made out of different things in which you know uh we didn't think was possible in the stone age um or they were you know uh burying people who who today we would think of as like a princely bur like a princely burial site because they had all this jewelry and all this other stuff but it was <laughs> they were burying like just just regular people Right or people that were kind of deformed, like people with like hunchbacks and things like that, right? They were burying these people like extremely, you know, um, respectfully and 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 almost like with a great level of detail, and that that goes against this idea that people had a kind of or people were very were kind of like simple-minded and 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 um, well, quote, quote unquote, a stupid savage, right? <laughs> Um, because it turns out our history books are completely wrong in this in this manner. And of course, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, history, this is not really accurate, you know, it's indoctrination, all that other stuff. But it's hard to actually come to grips with that if you don't know what is wrong about. Turns out, you know, a lot of history kind of makes us think, leads us to believe. It doesn't say, sometimes it doesn't say this outright, sometimes it does, but kind of leads us to believe either through, um, leaving out this information or misinterpreting this information it makes leads us to believe that human evolution particularly social social evolution right the, the evolution of our societies of our civilization has been well evolution has been a series of you know constantly uh, going from simple to complex like you know similar to biological evolution turns out that's wrong and it turns out most anthropolo anthropologists like learn this in like the first year of, of school <laughs> they realize that you know okay the whole social evolution that's completely bullcrap there's no evidence to, to, to suggest that human evolution that human societal evolution went from simple sim simple stuff to complex stuff and you know what we have today is way more complex and advanced you know than what was there before like there's no actual evidence of that <laughs> But unfortunately, you don't hear much about this because a lot of anthropologists are super, you know, academic. They're, you know, their research papers are very hard to read, you know, and all this other stuff. And they don't usually talk to the general public. And um, the general public, uh, for one reason or another, doesn't even want to believe, you know, when you, when you say things like this. All right. But Graeber and, and Waitner, they showed how actually a lot of the Enlightenment stuff, the French Enlightenment and all that stuff, a lot of the Enlightenment period... Um, information and that philosophy right 
that even the political critique came from the Native Americans when, you know, the Europeans came over to the, the quote-unquote New World. Think about that for a second. You know, we have this kind of idea that the um, Europeans came over and they started, you know, um, trying to take the land of the natives and this, that, and the other. Um, we have this idea that the natives were kind of like these, these, if some people view them as like savages, others view them as kind of a, um, a almost naive society, right? Who were living in these, quote, like these quote unquote backwards or, or, um, primitive, you know, tribes, these primitive hunter gatherer cultures, right? We have this <laughs> assumption of, of native Americans and many other indigenous people around the world turns out anthropological data and um, what do you call it uh, ethnographic data you know the ethnographic studies of people who, who, who were living in these environments shows something otherwise it shows that these people were extremely diverse in their in, in the way that they lived and they're very purposeful in the way that they created their societies turns out that there's actually history of some of them having extremely like big cities where tens of thousands of you know different native american or indigenous people you know are living in actual cities in america that and in very hierarchical structures right they had you know kings queens and all these other stuff all the way down to slaves and then all of a sudden in the in the anthropological data they break up you know and then nobody lives there for a long period of time. And those other societies, the, the, they break up into these, you know, these kind of hunter-gatherer clans and things like that. And, you know, that's how they live for hundreds of years until somebody else, you know, tries to create one of these cities and then they break up again. Right. And so <laughs> you have you got to you got to think about that when, when, when you see these patterns in the anthropological data of going back and forth between, you know, a extremely hierarchical structure and stuff like that and these other cities right and furthermore there's more evidence of not not, not only are all the not, ah. many of these cities were not strictly hierarchical some of them were right and the ones that were extremely hierarchical those are the ones that broke up pretty regularly but there were other cities right that were actually more egalitarian and you can see this in the data there's like there's there's little evidence of inequality and living in these urban settings and things like that and you have to wonder why and how. Turns out, <laughs> once again, that they, that they were thinking about, right? They were having these dialectics about their um, society, about their politics, about their government structure. You know, many of these tribes, many of these peoples, these indigenous people, would purposely realize that, okay, or would, would actually say in their, you know, um, in their histories that, okay, we used to live in these, you know, hierarchical structures, but we, um, the, the, the people in power, you know, they got real uppity. They tried to, you know, um, you know, basically take power over everybody. And so we killed them. <laughs> and and we, now we live in these egalitarian societies. And every time, you know, somebody tries to create one of these, you know, we, we take them down. Because <laughs> we realize that's not a good way of living. Right? It always, it, it always creates slaves. It creates warfare. It creates this, that, and the other. And so we purposely, you know, um have these anti-ego, anti-hierarchical uh, societies. That's huge. 
again, because, and what's crazy, kind of linking back to what I was talking about Hegel, is that in the 1700s, in the late 1700s, um, or really dating from, let's let's date from, I, I, well, I won't recap everything. I just suggest you go watch the video yourself. Um, but basically, you know, there, there were some of these Native Americans came over to visit Europe, um, and they would regularly talk about, you know, the differences between European society and Native American societies. And they would talk about how they would basically critique this stuff. They would be like, oh, man, you, you guys are weird. Like, you have, uh, <laughs> the, your freedom is, you have the, your freedom is, is the wrong way. Like, you think freedom is, you know, you have to compromise your freedom in order to live in these, you know, um, egalitarian societies. But really, you know, freedom is better is better when you have this, that, and the other. Um, when you can freely move around and do all this other stuff and you're not worried about, you know, who's going to tell you to do what. I'm grossly, you know, simplifying this stuff, but basically we're critiquing, you know, these ideas of freedom. And then these ideas of freedom became, like the Native Americans' idea of freedom became what the um, French revolutionaries used in their enlightenment, you know, <laughs> what the philosoph philosophers, the scholars and all this other stuff used in their enlightenment. And what was even crazier is that a lot of these, you know, um, like there was a book uh, by uh, this this one dude, one Native American called, I think it's Cond Condorank or something like that. Um, and he he was like a really great orator. He was a Native American and he learned a lot of these, you know, European languages. And he came over to Europe and he would just talk about, you know, um, European society and critique a lot of their societies. And even people who didn't like him really liked how he spoke because he was just extremely, you know, a great orator. And a lot of a lot of uh, the Europeans would then use his arguments to critique, you know, the Enlightenment, but from a from a kind of covert standpoint. Because you got to remember, those times were very uh, scared of critique, right? They would actually kill or ostracize people who critiqued the current way of doing things. There was no free speech, right? Like other, there's like even the European, really highly respected European scholars who were, who who critiqued, you know, the government or, um, you know, the ruling party or the aristocracy or whatever, they would be punished, <laughs> they would be you know chased out or, or rather they would be they they would try to kill them but they would run away and stuff like that, and so, um, what the scholars would do would would critique the European. You know, um, a lot of these European ways of, of of going through, like the monarchy and all this other stuff, but through a Native American lens, right? They will say, "Oh, this is what the savages say about our society." So they would they would they would cite basically cite these Native Americans, but they would call them savages. It's like the savages, you know, they have this naive way of looking at the world, and here's what they're saying. But really, what they're doing here. Even if, whether or not they believe they're they're savages, what they're doing here is that they want to critique the European way of doing things, or the you know the monarchic society, the aristocracy, the um, inequality and stuff like that. They wanted to critique all this stuff, but they were too scared to actually do it themselves. So they would you know say it's from the perspective of these quote unquote savages. And so oh you can't blame. I'm not I'm not saying this is what the savages say, right? They they have this naive way of looking at the world. <laughs> And then it turns out um, Jacques Rousseau, I think that's his name, or Rousseau, um, created this idea of the stupid savage or the noble savage. Not really the noble savage, but the, the super savage. This idea of, or rather he created the, um, 
the idea of the naive kind of view of the world. He created the, uh, what do you call it, um, social evolution theory, right? Where there was a contest to kind of explain, you know, or there was a contest to, um, yeah, explain social, social the, the, the origins of social inequality or something like that, right? Explain the origins of social inequality. It was a contest for it. And in that, con he so he, he wrote this essay, you know, to for this contest. And he <laughs> specifically, apparently, specifically wrote, this is not a real thing. This is just a thought experiment, right? This is just a thought experiment. But in that, he said, you know, um, maybe society is like an evolution thing where, where you have this, you know, kind of egalitarian um, um, hunter-gatherer kind of setup like the Native Americans then as you get more complex into your society, you know, you, you create this, you know, you create cities and then you create or you create agriculture and then you create cities. And as you as you get more complex and more centralized, you have to give up some of your freedom in order to live in these advanced, you know, communities. And um, therefore, that explains where we are today, because, you know, this is a you know, very complex society and we need, you know, some level of, of inequality, you know, in order to maintain what we have today. Um, because it's necessary for your for your freedom for this that and the other um, but but maybe one day you know we can go back to uh, <laughs> we can learn from you know these these naive uh, hunter gatherers and uh, <laughs> you know have more of that 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 equality that egalitarian in our society again right so he, he was kind of putting forth this thought experiment saying kind of trying to showcase why people gave up their freedoms and gave up their equality you know, um, based on these naive Native Americans. But again, he got most of these arguments from the critiques of the Native Americans against the European societies. And again, it was meant to be a thought experiment. But people took that as as gospel, basically. They said, oh, this is how the world works, you know. <laughs> this is what actually happened. And so, you know, after all these years, we still kind of have this this assumption about the world. And even when many of us, you know, try to learn about these hunter-gatherer societies, we come against people like, um, I forgot his name, but um, basically wrote the book in the, in the the 1900s about the noble savages. This idea that they were the, and I, and I, I mistakenly, you know, mm -hmm. thought this was true too, that these hunter-gatherer societies were the original affluence society because they had all these things um, in their society that was essentially free, right? free, you know, health, free education, and free um, food, and all this other stuff, because most of the community's needs were met within the community, so you didn't even need money in order to live, you know, an average everyday life, um, but it turns out, you know, this is a kind of insipid, you know, kind of insidious way of viewing the world, because it makes you think that these hunter-gatherers and this, you know, um, anarchic way of life is is um naive it's not right it makes you think that this this is it's idealistic like oh you can't live in that world only reason that works is because these people were simple because they lived a simple life because right <laughs> and then you still hear that argument today when you hear about anarchy or you know things like that is that people think it's a it's a simple life it's you know there's no way it could work today because we're so much more complex right there's so much more going on here but in reality we actually see anthropological data that shows that these people regularly 
took down these hierarchical structures because they realized that this was not a good way to live. They realized that this inequality was not ideal. <laughs> and they created anarchic and decentralized and egalitarian um, societies purposefully. Right? They created constitutions around these egalitarian ideas. And they um, distributed these constitutions throughout various different you know, tribes or clans, whatever you want to call them. And they created federations of different, you know, Native American tribes. And whenever there was another um, hierarchical, you know, structure that tried to come to power and tried to centralize that power and try to do it, they would take them down. They would take them down. And this is a, you know, a, a pattern that you can see, once again, for tens of thousands of years. And to me, like, it's just, oh my gosh, it, it's so exciting and it's so mind-boggling and it's kind of depressing because it's exciting, of course, because it shows that there's evidence, <laughs> you know, of of humans thinking, having this dialectic of what makes society and what makes a good society, what makes a bad society. And it's um, mind-boggling because it shows that, once again, we can change. And we can change very quickly. Like, I'm going to say, um, speak on some other ways that they change, but... Uh, but it's also depressing because it shows that we've, we've grossly, grossly indoctrinated ourselves. We've, we basically brainwash ourselves to forget most of our history. And that most people don't even realize how naive we are today. Like we speak of these other people as if they're naive. But they were way more purposeful. They are way more conscious of their way of life. If anything, we are less conscious. We are less, we are more naive. Because most people today don't even think about what life could be like. They don't even think about, you know, what if, what if we could do this? What if, you know, our society could be completely different? We've become contempt. We've become very much stratified and are almost stuck, right, in this way of thinking of the world. That this is the way things are and have to be and always will be and all this other stuff. But also, another, another point in this is that it turns out a lot of these Native American and many other indigenous communities would switch back and forth between a um, city structure and a tribal kind of, you know, hunter-gatherer structure within the same year. Within the same year. So, over during the summer, right, during the, the, the seasons of plenty, when there was a lot of stuff going on, they were very much hunted, you know, kind of these quote-unquote simple hunter-gatherer um, cultures, and they would go around and hunt and gather. You know, they would go, on, go, out, go around and forage for most of that time. And then in the winter, right, when there is less to, to find and less to forage, they would come together, multiple tribes, multiple clans would come together and form a city in order to save and, and you know, store up resources during those hard months, during those hard cycles. Like, think about that. Every year, every couple of seasons, they would do this regularly. They would completely change how their society functioned based on the environment, based on what was changing in the, in the world. And it got to a point where, like, some of them would even change, like, their names. They would change their, their entire roles. They'd say, okay, during the summer, I'm this type of person, Right? And during the winter, I'm another type of person. I'm another identity. There would, there would be, like, that's the height of human adapt, adaptivity, like adaptiveness. 
of human consciousness, of human dynamicism. It's like the fact that we can change just like that. That's just amazing to me. Furthermore, they would set up their society. Once again, they were consciously egalitarian. So when they came together in a city, they would create a police force, but only for that time. And furthermore, the police force would not be the same. They would, they, they would make sure that the police force were different people every year. Right? They would have to elect the, who would become the police, who would guard you know, the, all the resources and make sure they're divvied out fairly. And they would make sure that those that that power is not, you know, held for a long period of time. Because once again, they were consciously egalitarian. And many people in leadership positions did not act, did not want to be in leadership positions for a long period of time. Because they knew that it came with a new level of responsibility and a new level of um, of kind of scrutiny. Right. So they would get in, get, do their jobs. Right. And then get out and pass it on to somebody else. They didn't want to hold on to this, this power because their society, their culture, right, taught them and, and, and showed them the folly, the, 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 the foolishness of that. And it's just, it's just so amazing. And again, it's not like it's perfect you know, or anything like that. Some some of these people would create hierarchical structures and they would grasp for power and they would have slaves and they would have caste systems and everything like that. But then, you know, either themselves, they would rebel or somebody else would come along and be like, okay, this is not, that, not the move. They would try to free the slaves and all this other stuff. Right? It's not perfect. But it's definitely, I would say, better than what we have today. Because people knew that things changed they knew that things should change and will change they passed on this information of you know societal structures and um, the, the, the purpose and the power of egalitarian uh, culture and they, they specifically had social behaviors different societies would have social behaviors to you know um, disencourage narcissistic or egotistical people from gaining power like they understood this stuff Maybe they didn't have the same type of philosophical text that we had But they had a way more practical philosophical approach They didn't just write this, these ideas down And critiqued it from the uh, thought experiment And left it at that No, they <laughs> regularly practiced these things every day And it turns out also It's funny because um, The use of coca You know, the use of chocolate of drinking hot chocolate and stuff like that, even um, coffee and stuff like that. A lot of that came, once again, from the Native Americans. Smoking tobacco, these smoke houses, sitting in, sitting in, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, I forgot what you call it, but basically, wait, like chill spots where you just talk around and smoke and, and you know, um, converse. That came, a lot of that came from the Native Americans. And they were, and and the Europeans would, you know, import that into their culture. So we learned a lot. We got a lot from our, um, just this quote unquote Western, you know, um, culture. Got a lot from these Native Americans, and a lot of that is ignored. We kind of view them as just like, oh, they're just some naive, just some savages, just some whatever, right? Some less developed people. But a lot of our development came from that. And we kind of bastardized that. 
and we lost a lot of the, the good parts. So yeah, man, that's that got me going hearing all that. So I want to I want to delve more into that literature. I want to see what else they got going on and um, see if I can find some um, some of his writings, some of the the Native Americans, some of their writings and, and speeches and stuff like that. Because I think that would be super super amazing, beneficial and cogent and it just it just awesome, man just wild <laughs> and it's sad that um, unfortunately we have way more anthropological data of European and Eurasian and um, Native American but very little from Africa because Africa is even worse than you know the Native Americans in some way because at least with the native americans many you know we we're, we're now on their land so a lot of people, a lot of anthropologists from america are you know here digging around here to find this data but there's not a lot of people in africa doing that you know because of the last 400 years of freaking colonialism and just burning their shit and taking their shit and all this other stuff and now you know <laughs> it's really difficult to find anthropological data from Africa. And I and I have this feeling that there's going to be even richer data there to find. There's going to be even richer amount of wisdom and history there. Why because of course there would be. Like that's literally the birthplace of humanity. But for some reason again, oh I I guess we now know the reason. <laughs> right? People think that because just because it was a birthplace of humanity, that doesn't mean there's uh, like any good stuff to find there. <laughs> People think that this, you know, the first humans were just dumb, were just like some children, some naive cavemen, or some dumb, stupid savages, right? But you have to think about this. The difference between Homo sapiens and other Homo erectus or whatever is not. Is is like a factor of like the brain and all this other stuff, but it's not. It's not super different. The other Homo sapiens, I mean, the other Homo species, all has similar brain structures. In fact, the Neanderthals, who are you know one of our closest cousins, they're mostly in the the European or Eurasian areas. They were extremely smart. They had bigger brains in many aspects, right? They were extremely smart. And they had very complex societies. Again, there's anthropological data there because there's people living there looking for that data. But there were three, four, almost a dozen different types of homo species in Africa who were living there for a million to two million years. Like we know that this, <laughs> you know, the homo species evolved in Africa roughly two million years ago. So you're telling me a species with similar levels of intelligence as us today did not have any sort of complex societies in the span of two million years? And then our ancestors, species who were literally just like us, who evolved 200,000 years ago. 200, oh no, I'm sorry, 300 to 350,000 years ago in Africa. You're telling me that in the space of 300,000 years, 
300,000 years, none of them had any complex societies. None of them had any, you know, dialectics. None of them had any philosophy. None of them had any civilization. For 300,000 years. Like, come on. That doesn't even make any sense. Because, again, we have this silly idea that we are just so much smarter than where we were 10,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago. But the anthropological data does not show that. We're just as smart. We're maybe a little bit less smart (laughs) because many of us don't use, you know, a lot of those aspects of our minds anymore. A lot of us don't use, you know, that level of memory. We don't have to remember hundreds of thousands of plants and animals and all this other stuff. You know, a lot of us don't have to, you know, use this complex social behaviors. We just look at the rules, just look at the, you know, <laughs> just kind of do live almost blindly, almost almost as if we're, we're sleepwalking in a way. And I don't want to be like, oh, we got to wake up, y'all. I mean, kind of do, but still, like, just think about that. The fact that these people, for most of human history, humans would sit around and talk with each other. Are you telling me they never discovered anything more? <laughs> Than these quote unquote simple, you know, societies. The fact that they created art and literature and you know all this other stuff, math, astronomy, music. But for some reason they didn't have any complex philosophical or psychological or you know um, political ideologies. Come on. So yeah, I really think that we're missing a huge, huge amount of information in history. And uh, part of me really wants to become an anthropologist now. <laughs> like I said before, I want to be a psychologist, anthropologist, everything. I want to. There's so much to learn, so much to discover. But I can't do all of it. I will do as much as I can, but. I hope this really what I really hope is that this inspires you. This inspires people out there who are specialists, who are generalists, to also look for these things. Because I can't do it alone, you know. And there's plenty of other people looking. But we need more people looking in Africa. We need more people looking, period, in every every continent, every country. We need more people looking and thinking about these things and realizing that, you know, the way we live now does not have to be. It's not the creme de la creme. It's not the best that we've ever been. It's not the most progressive. It's not the most developed. It's not. No. There's more to the story. And we have to figure out what that is. So, yeah. As always, let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you're doing. Let me know what you want to do. Let me know if this inspired you or not. <laughs> I would hope so. It certainly inspired me. Um, and if you're looking at this, if you're hearing this, you know, once again, today, tomorrow, 100 years, 10 years, 1,000, whatever, <laughs> keep looking. There's probably still more on whatever timeline you're in, right? Because as long as we're not omnipotent and omnipresent and everything like this, there's more. <laughs> as long as we're, you know, just individuals, individual people. And we don't know everything about the universe, then there's more to the story. And I hope we can discover that together. 
So thanks for listening. And um, keep looking. Keep learning. Have a great day. See ya. Bye-bye.